Uh, on the way, uh, we hit Bandon, Oregon, mm -hmm. in one of the trips, and I had an epiphany on a July summer day in 2003 that I thought we could live out here. I didn't have to contact any ex-spouse or the kid's mother to find out most people would couldn't do right. it. Right, yeah, yeah. So I'd have to, I know, there's visitation. I thought I could move out here. I fell in love with Oregon, and then we got to Portland a few days later, and I thought, okay, I might be able to make a living here. The Portland 50 Podcast is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Additional support for the Portland 50 is provided by Zupan's Markets. My guest this week is Chris Angelis with Portland Food Adventures. It's something he's been doing since 2010 and has involved over 200 local chefs and artisans where he brings them together with food lovers here in the Portland community. It's also something that he's now taken internationally, making regular visits to Spain, Italy, and coming up soon to Australia. Chris is also the host of the Right at the Fork podcast. Now, that's something I've had the pleasure to be a part of since its debut in 2014, first as the audio engineer, and then he brought me in a couple years ago as his co-host. He, he does most of the talking. But Chris has a unique story, and it's something I've been fascinated by for some time, and this is an interview I've wanted to do for some time. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures and Right at the Fork. Well, besides, you have to brand for a while, so it's like you have to right. do this for a year for it to really have effect. You're the expert. I'm not an expert, but, but and by the way, I was an expert, but then everything changed. Well, see, that's actually the perfect lead-in to some of my first questions here as we talk with Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures and Right at the Fork podcast. Um, you, your background, okay, let, let's start with this. You're going to find that I, my interview style on these podcasts are all over the place, Chris. Well, it's no wonder you've been listening to me for six years. You wouldn't learn anything there. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a rambling circle. <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. Okay, so the elevator pitch for Portland Food Adventures is what? For those how, lo how long have we got? How long well, it's an the elevator. elevator we're, go can, we're going. Can we go to the Empire State Building? We're, uh, let's just say we're going to the 10th floor. The 10th floor. I don't know how many seconds that All is. All right, so the elevator pitch for that is um, uh, Portland Food Adventures was something I developed 10 years ago after having sat at chef's counters and really enjoyed the unique experience of getting to know chefs in Portland, and I tried to find a way to replicate that one-on-one -on -one experience I had with everyone, yeah. which included talking to chefs and hearing where they hung out and where they liked to go as recommendations, uh, and move, turn those into events. And this were, these were in the days where there weren't really a lot of yeah. food events. In now Portland. it seems like every every weekend there's at least something food centric in Portland, if not like every night of the week. Yeah, right? exactly. It's All not only every weekend, so you can buy tickets. Yeah, you know my events are ticketed, and so you can buy tickets. Oh, look to at this. A lot we're on things. the tenth floor. Sorry, Chris. Yeah, you, I gotta get off. No. All right. No. Um. You, but prior to 2009, 2010, you weren't in the, you weren't doing events like this before. You I'd never, never done, done any them. event no. and I had nothing to do with restaurants other than eating at them right. and enjoying them. And I actually moved out to Portland in 2005 and did not know there was even a, a blossoming food scene here or any kind of food scene no. whatsoever. I, I had stayed at the Fifth Avenue Suites and asked the concierge where I should go for 
dinner and he gave me Jake's and Ruth's Chris, which is you right. know, not the first place you tell someone trying to learn a food scene in a, you know, a, a great chain. And but. he told me not to go on the other side of that river, the, the that Willamette River. Oh, really? Is it just, just there's nothing over there? He said there's nothing over there. You just get lost and there's a lot of crime. Wow. That's what he told me. So I moved here the yeah. next year and I never went. <laughs> I didn't go over there. I lived on the west side. I actually lived in Lake Oswego and started reading this PortlandFoodAndDrink.com. This guy named Food Dude was doing awesome reviews of restaurants. So I started going to Country Cat and Navarre's things he was writing about and then just said, this is really cool. I had an ad agency for years and that wasn't quite as fun. That whole world was moving towards digital and I liked traditional analog advertising more. I was good at it, I thought, and I made a living at it. But when things were getting a little away from me, I thought, let me try this. So the cool thing about are we on the hundredth floor yet? I, I think I, yeah, I think we've we've gone. We're, I think we burst through the ceiling. <laughs> right. Yeah. So well, that's the whole idea. So yeah. so I, interestingly enough, about Portland because this would not happen where I came from in Connecticut. I called three chefs, one who only barely knew me from a conversation when I had lunch at Ned Ludd. Yeah. Uh, but I called Kathy Wims, Jason French, and Scott Dolich, and said, "I have this idea." For event, would you listen? And all three said, "Sure, come in and talk to me." They didn't know who I was. Yeah, they, I, you know, had nothing to do with the industry, and I, and they all gave it a whirl. And in those days, because of my advertising connections, I, I got segments on Channel Twelve and Channel Eight. Right. For each event, you can't make that's that hard, happen hard, now unless right. you're Feast Portland. Sure. That's about it. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so that's where it went, and now we're doing travel to foreign lands with Portland, cool Portland artisans and chefs. Yeah. So, and that's, to me, that's what I'm enjoying the most now. This is our little secret that nobody's going to hear. Right. Is that uh, I love my food events in Portland, but what I really enjoy are my trips to Australia and Spain and Italy Mm -hmm. that I'm doing. So that's fun. We'll talk about those a little bit later on, but let's, let's go back to Connecticut because that's, that's where you grew up in Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut, yeah. So uh, outside of New York, yeah. And your so, your dad was a was a ad guy too, right? Was my dad it? was a pretty big ad guy, yeah. but he didn't go very far. He had a big ego and threw that around too much. Mm-hmm. But he was uh, he was actually the first international uh, marketing director for a little company called PepsiCo International. I think I've heard tale of those guys. Yeah. So uh, so he was responsible for bringing Pepsi into India and uh, Asia. Did he travel a lot? Yeah, because of that, they did you, were away did you a lot. travel because of that as well? Not much. No, I got to travel on the on the 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 domestic vacations sure. once in a while, but I didn't go. My mother, my mother, and my father were off all over the place, and mm-hmm. I wish we still had those little eight millimeter films of all of them in Beirut when Be- before Beirut was what, a what happened bomb to zone. I, I, just over the, the years, the moves, their yeah. moves, my moves. I don't know where they are. They're yeah. somewhere, but. I didn't clean out their house upon their passing, so right. that's not what happened. But at any rate, they used to travel a lot, and we lived in this interesting community in Connecticut where there were a lot of fairly wealthy people, and so everybody's parents were gone, so there were parties in big, beautiful homes all the time. Right. And uh, we didn't realize, you're growing up, you don't realize that's not what the world is really like. Sure. And uh, so Darien, Connecticut, back in the 70s, I don't remember doing any homework, but I certainly had a good time, and I and I certainly learned how to um, 
what a good party was like. So maybe that's yeah, what was the name of me later wasn't, on. Wasn't there a, a beach, the Weed Beach? Weed Beach was Weed the beach, place yeah. we all hung out. Yeah. And and inter- it's, for anybody who's in Portland, uh, my buddy Jeff Reidebach, who owns Homegrown Smoker, right, would know would have known that too. Came from the same area. Same, yeah. high, same high school, right? Same high school. As a matter of fact, if you have time, I can tell you a really funny story about that. So I, I come out here in 2005, and I have a friend coming to visit. Mm-hmm. I knew nobody, and I just wanted to get a little pot for, yeah. to, for their visit. And sure. so I had seen that Jeff was online, and I said, I, know, I knew his sister, mm-hmm. and I sort of knew him. And I said, he's in Portland, and I had seen him on Facebook a little bit. So I wrote him and said, sure, come on over. I won't go into what he had at the time because now it's legal, but then it wasn't. Then it wasn't right. And so, um, but I said, Jeff, I whatever happened to you? I haven't seen you in years. And he said, Well, that's because. Uh, do you remember the? Do you remember when Dr. Robbins, who was the vice principal, there was that um, scandal where somebody put blotter acid in his coffee? And I said, yeah, I, I absolutely actually do remember. That was a big deal. Right. You know, someone got the, the vice principal completely stoned out of their mind. And he said, well, the last time I saw Darien High School was through the window of Mrs. Parker's math class. And I, I left and I went out to the West Coast and I, that was it. I moved to the West Coast back in, when he was in like 11th grade. Wow. So... That was, but, but that was that was his uh, that was his farewell. That was his farewell, and I thought it was I thought it was extremely fitting yeah. that that guy who did left town because of that reason yeah. was now in Portland, Oregon. It was like the perfect right. right. You wouldn't. It wasn't surprising. Yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, so now he runs Homegrown Smoker, which is just awesome. Vegan barbecue. Yeah. Very typical Portland. Awesome. It's like place. the most. Typical Portland, or the exactly. most stereotypical Portland. Stereotypical Portland. Yeah. So anyway, there's that story. But um, you know, then I, uh, but and then I lived. I didn't grow. I when I was older, I didn't choose to live in Darien, Connecticut. I yeah. moved up to Pike to Guilford, which is a really beautiful place, uh, but not quite as snooty and not, and not hedge fund people and all that. But you ended up uh, eventually in radio advertising. I don't know if that was the first. First, pl- no, uh, you stop I on the at, train. I worked at a really cool ad agency for years. I have stories on everything, but I'm not going to go into that no. one. But my friend was working in radio at WPLR in New Haven, mm-hmm. and I was an account guy at a uh, agency in Greenwich. And he was just, you know, every time we went out to eat, he could afford to pay for everything, and I was struggling with my family. And he said, "You should go into radio sales." And um, as a matter of fact, our agency was laying people off. I went in and met with this gentleman by the name of John Bergen, who was the guy that yeah. Mad Men was formed after. He was okay. the original Mad Men. Sure. Mad Men. So I go in and interview with him to see if I should be going into Madison Avenue and following in my father's footsteps and all that. And he said to me, he said, don't do this. You see those pictures over there of my family? I don't see them. They generally hate me because I'm not in their lives. And so he said, go into media sales. Those guys have time for their family and those guys make money. And so I followed his advice. Wow. And I did. And so it's one of the reasons I'm here because I became fairly comfortable with that world. Yeah. Um, I hated media sales. I hated radio sales. Mm -hmm. But I was pretty good at it because my niche in the uh, sales department was that I could write great copy. Yeah, I thought I could, but I, that's how I got clients is I would write the copy and then, okay, they loved it. So now you got to run it somewhere, right? So you'll run it with me and you'll buy a schedule. Sure. And so I did that. And, uh, from there, 
the logical progression was I met some people in that business who needed advertising help beyond radio. So I started working with them as their agency, small little agency, which got me on, got me, launched me into uh, the advertising world. Yeah. And it launched me out to Oregon. One of the, one of the, the things that I've always kind of admired about you, Chris, is that, um, I, and I think you've talked about this with me a few times, is that the decision you had to make when you set out to start the agency, basically separating yourself from an actual company where there was the more likelihood of a regular paycheck to doing it on your own was also when you found yourself as a single father of two. Yeah, I was forced. Well, I lost my job. I worked at a small age, another small agency there, and I was not able to work. I yeah. was so distraught that my marriage fell apart. And uh, I wasn't really just so distraught about I have full custody of a four and seven year old and have to figure out how to make this work. But I was, I was, you know, I was heartbroken, sure. and uh, that was not the plan after eighteen years to yeah. do it. So um, I kind of things happen, and you have to force things to happen in life. So the same week I got divorced, I, I started my little ad agency, and, and I also worked in media sales as well for a, a more a publication, a niche publication, so I did both. But um, yeah, and I, I forced myself to learn, but I have not had a steady paycheck. I've had paychecks that I pay myself, right. but I haven't had a, something that where I know it's coming uh, since 1995. On the plus side to that uh, is that, I've made my own schedule on every day yeah. since 1995, and, and, and I'm put on a tie, except for maybe an occasion here and there. But okay. That's it. And you didn't have to do it on, like daily, not put on yeah, tie. or or annually. Yeah. I didn't have to do it. So <laughs> you think uh, you've gone years without putting on a tie? I just said to my girlfriend Renee yesterday, I said yeah. it's been it's been at least a couple of years since I put on a tie. So yeah. you think you could still do it blindfolded? You yeah, I did. I did for, I, for whatever reason. I had one on recently, and I for a, a joke. And I was able to You're tie able it. to do it? Yeah, I can do it. Bow tie, how do you... How, how, no, 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 not I can't do it. Never did it. No. I just don't think that's I, There's YouTube videos out there for that. I've been doing that lately. Well, they didn't have YouTube right, back in the true. day. That's so. true. So one of, one of the things you've uh, always shared with me is, is because you were making your own schedule, because you were now self-employed, that is what allowed you to be there for your boys, raising them as a single father. Yeah, That's probably the only way it really worked. It was it was the only, well, I wanted to do it first. It's yeah. not like I said, I have to be self-employed. Yeah. That's the only way it's going to work. But it ended up, after a few years, you realize, wow, oh, I don't know how I would be employed. My old, my One of my sons has Asperger's syndrome, which mm -hmm. back in 1992, when it was diagnosed, there was one book on the subject and i was told he would never be independent uh, he's gainfully employed now and certainly independent yeah. so um but i had to advocate for him um in school to make sure he got services that he needed and then when we moved it was uh, to oregon and i just assumed everything would just follow me and whatever services he was getting there would follow here no and uh, and even after i moved here i found out no he's not necessarily getting that lows unless you advocate so i wondered how or i i certainly appreciate and respect how hard it is for working people and especially working parents i'll say fathers and mothers yeah um to handle those types of things because you you know not only things for your kids but how do you you know getting mortgages and oh, yeah. all those things you have to spend hours on the phone doing uh during the middle of the day so i it's always been a little easier for me 
Maybe, but I, I, I like to think of you've always served as a uh, since since I learned this about you. Um, you've always been a bit of inspiration for me because, you know, I, both my wife and I work and our kids are busy. We, we probably make them way busier than they should be, but. Oh, that I, that I believe. Oh yeah. You know, we've, we've had that, we've had that conversation, (laughs) but, but I always think I'm just like, man, how did, how did Chris do this with two boys on his own while running his own, you know, running his own business? I mean, that's. Because I was doing it from the, you know, the house. Yeah. And, and, and in those days you had to actually fake that you had an office right. working right? from home wasn't the wasn't, right you didn't tell yeah, anybody i'm yeah. working from home you just yeah. said i'll be in the office at four o'clock yeah, and yeah. you and you locked the dog up ever, to make sure there was no barking. Did you ever transfer the call to yourself no i don't think i did that i may have i don't know but you had to do you had to do things like that and then um you know there were snow days yeah. where the kids were home all the time and i have to tell you i have no sympathy for people who tell me, "Oh, it's a snow day now. My kids are home. I can't make a business call." Right. It's like it's that was just, that was your life. Yeah, you have to make yeah. a call, and I also don't. Uh, so, having done it myself, and I'll never say it was really hard because I always felt that without a spouse. So the the thing was that you didn't mention is my their mother just took off. We hadn't yeah, heard she from was, her she for was, 20 years. She was not in the picture so at all. So there was no, there were yeah. no weekends where I got a break yeah. or, you know, so that's a different kind of single parenthood yeah, yeah, than, than the negotiation. The On the other sure. hand, there was no, the buck stopped with me and there was no negotiation and it was easier to be, in some respects, it was way easier to be a single parent because I didn't have to deal with that nonsense with uh, an ex-spouse and sure. trading off weekend and arguing about this. I've seen that. But I really, I find it, I try not to say anything. I bite my tongue, but people who you know say it's my kids' weekend. I can't come to your party. It's kind of like, geez, I had to every weekend was kids' weekend, and yeah. I, so I get a sitter. But I do understand where people on the week that they have their kids want to spend time with them right. too. But on the other hand, come on, you don't have to do it every week. You can get away sure. a little bit. And besides, I think it's good to show kids that the. World does not revolve around them. I'm not staying home every weekend because you're here. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, I uh, obviously did a little bit of thinking of this. About you should this write a parenting book. Well, I was starting to write a book on raising a kid with Asperger's syndrome, yeah. but the thing was, he's a private person, right? And I, everything I would write would be violating his privacy. And then, sure. and it was about a single parent. So I was making I submitted this to an editor in New York who really wanted this book yeah. and pro- may still want it, but it was years ago. And she said, you got a little bit of a flip attitude towards your ex-wife. And I said, well, how am I going to handle, how am I supposed to handle the woman I loved and the mother of my children taking off with the produce guy mm-hmm. uh, without some a little, little bit of attitude and sarcasm sure. about the whole thing? Yeah. So, and then I just said, well, for two reasons, this book is probably not something I need to put out there, but I still have a pretty, I can do it now without the hurtful emotion because I'm kind of beyond a lot yeah, of Yeah, you're a little more, more removed. Yeah, the, the yeah. my sons are raised. I have a different life. I have yeah. a different focus and uh, I really enjoy myself out in Manzanita. And now I'm for a living. I can't believe this. If you told me I was doing this 10 years ago, traveling around the world yeah. with people who are paying to go have these experiences. So. Well, well, you when you were, um, and I want to talk about your the what prompted you to make the move from the East Coast here to Portland. While you were in Connecticut, though, during this time, e- eating out, but never having the experiences that you had here in Portland in terms of the the rapport you would get with the the chef at a chef's counter. Never. No. 
Well, not only that, I had younger kids, so right. I mean, we were harder to do. We were at chip, you know, we were at pubs and pizza places, yeah. and I mean, I wasn't embarrassed to go into a cracker Cracker Barrel. I didn't know that I should be embarrassed. Now that you live in Portland in this food world, it's not something you generally talk I'll, about. I'll, I haven't been in one in I'll, years. I'll take you to Cracker Barrel because I love their mashed potatoes. Yeah, so and I have, I really, there's, we have a snobbery here in Portland yeah. about it's got to be farm fresh farm and it's got to be right. this. I'm totally okay with a with a McDonald's, to, McDonald's sausage biscuit yeah. in the morning and a, and a cup of coffee for two bucks. Go to Beaverton, and you're going to see all those places. Yeah, they're all there. And yeah. by the way, um, Popeye's fried chicken, one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. Don't take that away. Sure. So, um, I love that. So let's talk about the um, the two trips that uh, you took. In, were they back-to-back summers where you decided? What, what prompted the... Um, How much time we, do we have? We, it's always that question. Yeah, we got, we got a, a few more minutes here. Okay. Got a little bit. So you did this unique thing where you took your boys on a road trip through the United States, specifically to visit ballport, ballparks, ballparks right? Major League what, ballparks. what prompted that? So I was a, uh, I was a, I've always been a big New York Mets fan. Yeah. It's the only sport I have left that I love. I used to love, uh, growing up, I was 11 years old when mm-hmm. the Mets won the world championship, which those listening who are under 40 wouldn't have any idea what a big thing that was. Right. The Amazing Mets, the Jets won the Super Bowl with Joe Namath. The, the Knicks won the World Championship at 11 years old. That's like the perfect time for a little jockey kid right. to appreciate that. And so um, so I've always been a Met fan. And my son, who I mentioned um, with some disabilities, was spending too much time in front of a computer. So mm-hmm. my friend in, North, uh, in Bozeman, Montana, offered to take him out to the wilderness for two weeks where there were no electronics. Well, he was just freaked out by that prospect. But, and also looking at plane flights to get out there, it was two connections. And so for a 13-year-old with Asperger's syndrome, I thought that was a little bit much to trust that was going to happen. So I thought, you know, go back to, I control my own schedule. And I had this awesome connection with Comcast who their rep said, I could set you up at ballparks all across the country with tickets. So I thought, why don't I just make this a long summer long journey to get him to Bozeman and we'll go to ballparks on the way. This is like the dream. And so uh, it ended up to be, well, I'm not going to drop him off in Bozeman. We'll just go see Dave and hang out for three days and then we'll continue. So we ended up doing 50 for 55 nights, 14,000 miles where I'm doing all the driving. And, mm-hmm. you know, I got I got sleep apnea problems, too. So that was an interesting challenge, right. making sure we all lived. But um, <laughs> but I did half the Major League Ballparks, and I have to tell you, the hi- I have a lot of wonderful things to be thankful for mm-hmm. in my life. Those were the highlight. That was a highlight of my life, just driving across the country with my kids, yeah. sitting in Kansas City, looking at the storm coming in watching the scoreboards the whole thing was wonderful and so i had planned that whole thing over a terrible winter all this comes together terrible winter in connecticut um so the planning was kind of the escape from the hell weather i was looking at outside right summer's coming and we're going to be in ballparks and then another bad winter came right after it and i thought all right let's do it again so i did the second one in 2003 some really incredible things happened along both of those journeys with I don't know if you know Daryl Kyle dying in a hotel room when we oh, right. were on our way to that hotel. Right, okay. So we stayed there right after it, and wow. then we went to St. Louis, and they had the memorial for Daryl Kyle, and we were at that game. I mean, little wonderful little things that the kids, will, they remember these things forever. Yeah. So we ended up doing almost all Major League ballparks. Um, 
except for the ones in Florida, which, you know, I mean, Tropicana Field, I think I could do without that. Sure. And I'd already been to all, everything in the Northeast. So um, uh, on the way, uh, we hit Bandon, Oregon, mm-hmm. and one of the trips, and I had an epiphany on a July summer day in 2003 or four. I don't, oh, 2003, that I thought we could live out here. I didn't have to contact any ex-spouse or the kid's mother to find out. Most people would couldn't do right. it. Right, yeah, yeah. Because I'd have to, I know, there's visitation. I thought I could move out here. I fell in love with Oregon, and then we got to Portland a few days later, and I thought, okay, I might be able to make a living here. Yeah. And um, that was that. And it took a couple of years to orchestrate a move. Not easy to do across country with kids in middle school and high school. Right. Um, and I don't Did you think, get any resistance from your boys on oh, that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was a resistance, but yeah. they're, they're cool with it now, and I knew what was better for them, and a lot of their lives were online at the time, so I thought- right. Yeah. If you're going to be online, you can do this. But yeah, I got, definitely got resistance. I used my dog as the bribe. So uh, my youngest really wanted a dog, yeah. and he was the one who was the most giving me the most resistance on the move. And I said, listen, okay, I'll relent on the dog, but no more, not another word about Oregon. And, uh, and that dog's still alive. That yeah. was 15, 14 years ago. Oakley. My wonderful little Labradoodle. I didn't. I didn't realize that Oakley was part of that deal. That negotiation. Oakley was part of the deal. Yeah, and he's still part of the deal. Yeah, big part of the deal. The Portland Fifty Podcast is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Talking Trash, a Green Tips podcast is a chance for me to jump into the world of sustainability by talking to people in business, government, and nonprofits. Hi, I'm Peggy LaPointe. You can find weekly episodes every Tuesday at kink.fm, Apple iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts. So you, so you, you, you move to, to Portland and you start going to these restaurants and that's and so that would have been 2005. So it was a good four or five years though until... You, you pulled the trigger I on. didn't even realize there was a food scene until 2007. Yeah. So I was just going to the same places down near where I lived because someone told me not to go over the bridge. Right. And uh, yeah, it was about 2008, 2009, I started um, getting out of the house and going. I used to be a regular at Navarre over on 28th. I went there quite a bit because the server there was from Connecticut and we had a lot in common and we used to talk. And then one day I started reading that blog, Food Dude's blog. Yeah. And would divert myself from Navarre to the place that he was talking about, Country Cat or something. And uh, I kept going to these restaurants and I was just like, I was hooked. This is really cool. To It was the chef's counters that got me. I would not have been hooked if I just sitting at restaurants. But it, it was, I really started to think we're in Portland. Remember I told you about my childhood with football, yeah. basketball. All we had was the Blazers, and right. I wasn't really a huge Blazer fan. I thought these guys, these chefs, and this is when food TV started taking off. Yeah, yeah. These chefs are our rock star, our celebrities here, and, and we, they should be showcased. And they have really hard jobs, and they, they make these things sing. And they're interesting people. They all have backgrounds that nobody knows about. So we're eating their food it would be nice to know about their backgrounds, where they learned about food or what their food first food memories were. And that's why we have the podcast too. Yeah. So to go a little deeper. So I, and you, I think you answered this in the initial convert or initial question about Portland food adventures though, but you, you didn't model these events on anything other than what would be uh, what you think would be a gr- good night for a bunch I had of people. no idea. Yeah. And I really didn't know anything about restaurants per se. So 
I went to Kathy Wims, um, who you know is pretty well known and, yeah. and had just had opened an astron. Well, no, she'd had an astronaut for a little while, but she didn't know me. And I sat down with her outside of her restaurant. I said, so here's what I want to do. I would like you to serve everything on the menu, which I hadn't even really looked at her menu. Right. Yet, but she, she looked at me, everything? And I said, well, I want everybody to be, just get a full Nostrana experience. Like the, all in one night, yeah. you're going to know what Nostrana is like, but I want you to come out and serve everything and talk about the dishes. And I just want people to really get to know you as though they were sitting at a chef's counter just having a conversation with you. And then the next night, we're, she gave me her list of favorite places, and Bar Avignon was on the top of Kathy Wim's list. She she loved Randy and Nancy, late Randy. Um, and uh, I said, and then the next night, we're going to go and have drinks with you over at Bar Avignon. How cool is that? Can really get to know the chef. So um, that did, that part of it never really worked out because getting people to come Thirty people to come on Tuesday night and right. then come back, back on Wednesday. They were all yeah. too busy. That's for that. That was tough. So yeah. it ended up just being let's go get gift certificates to Bar Avignon and then two or three of Kathy's other favorite places. Mm-hmm. So you come to these events, you get that experience. And by the way, I'll, Kathy was awesome because her we didn't bu- we couldn't buy out an astronomy. We had like twenty five people yeah. at the first one, but so it's a loud restaurant. She had to serve. One side of the table, tell this long story, then go to the middle of the table, tell it again. Same thing. And she did it for like 10 courses. So oh, wow. 40 things I'm asking her to come out and explain everything. Yeah. By then she, she was giving out the Cliffs Notes, just the shortened, shortened right. version, right? But she, you know, she was a, a trooper on it. But on the other hand, on the other side, I, you know, I had TV stations in her restaurant talking to her about right. this. So she was all over everything. And, you know, there's a certain close-knit community who reads Eater who understands, the, who knows about the Portland food scene and who's been where and who likes who. And then there's this whole other food world out there that has no idea, and those are the people you reach with TV. Right. So um, so that was cool, and that was event number one. Mm-hmm. And I honestly had no plan on where to go from there, and it went pretty well. It went well. It was fun. Yeah. And then we did another one, and then they just kept coming, and I... And then I, I didn't make a lot of money. I still had my ad agency. Mm-hmm. I wasn't making big money on events, but I was pulling, you know, making enough to say, this is okay, this is fun, and yeah. where can it lead? So, like, I didn't know it was going to lead to the podcast. Mm-hmm. I didn't, this is my advice as a guy who's lived a big life. Just do things and you don't know where they're going to lead right. uh, that you enjoy. Yeah. So, um, so I led to... Right at the Fork podcast, and it also led to getting to go and getting to know a guy like Jose Chesa at Atala and asking him when I wanted to take my son mm-hmm. as a graduation gift to Barcelona, where should we go? And then we came back, and he gave me these incredible recommendations. So that was the catalyst. That was my next question. That what was the catalyst to taking Portland Food Adventures to international trips. on that's trips? What, that's was, what it was, was. Just a personal was, question that became, hey, wait a minute, we could do this on a bigger oh, scale. So I, I'm the type, and I'm sure a lot of people are. When they're going on vacation, they're going to do massive research on where to eat. Right. Right. You could, there's all the, there are all these sources now. You can read blogs. But for this one, Jose just gave me his list. Yeah. He's, from, he's from there. He would know. He's from Barcelona. Yeah. His friends went to culinary school. He knows people who own, who own restaurants there. Mm-hmm. 
and he just gave me his list. Bing, 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 bing. I get there. I have to do no research, which I really enjoyed. I could spend time doing other things and not wondering. Because I, I swear, I'll get down. Should we go here or should we go there? Right. Make a decision. And then 10 minutes later, I don't know. Maybe it should be over there. So I didn't have to do that. And we had such a good time. And everything was so incredible. Uh, of course, on the way back on the plane, I thought, this is a business idea. Yeah. And it takes... What I was doing with Portland Food Adventures in restaurants in Portland and expands it in a beautiful, organic way. The idea was to get to know chefs. Now you're going to go back to their where they came, where they from, came from and spend a week. Yeah. And so a guy like Jose, uh, which we've done four trips with him to Barcelona, and you know, and and coming up with Nolan Hurdy from Proud Mary, oh yeah, down in Australia. Australia. Yeah. We're going to go in two months and spend. Um, nine days with with him in a place where everybody's going to welcome him back with open arms mm-hmm. all his cotton industry colleagues because you know it's a close-knit everybody knows everybody right and they can't wait you're bringing people back from portland to show them what we're doing here and so where else can you get that experience so i thought this was the most beautiful organic way to expand what i'm doing and selfishly to do something i really enjoyed which is Getting to see these places I've never seen in ways that are just awesome. You could plan a trip to Australia, to Melbourne, and it would be it could be cool. You could kind of look at what we're doing and try to get a feel. We don't list every restaurant that we're going to for a particular reason. Yeah. Or you could see it afterwards looking at the Instagram. And you could do that. You could go by yourself or with a friend or your, your significant other. But you would never have a party with Portland people and have everybody welcoming your host, Nolan, into their restaurant and giving you demonstrations and bringing you in the kitchen and here's what we do. It's really cool experience. Yeah. So. Uh, just recently, before we get too far away from it, um, you, your most recent uh, dinner, which was just last week. Tasty and Daughters. Tasty and Daughters, number 70, uh, 70, 75, 76. Or 76 yeah. I can't keep track. Yeah, I, yeah. Just, I think somewhere along the way I said, how many have I done? And I went back and counted and I yeah. probably didn't get it right. So. Yeah. So you, you used to do at least, you were doing like one a month for a while, right? Yeah, but now it's hard with the travel to yeah. keep that up. And then also, one would think these things would get easier. I yeah. sold everything out for three years. Right. And it was, that was cool. I loved mm-hmm. This is great. You put up an event, sold out. You get to say sold out. Stop thinking about it. Move on to the next one. Right. Nowadays, it's a little tougher, except with a place like Tasty and Daughters. Right. You know it's going to sell out. Right. The opening, they closed Tasty and Sons, John Gorham and Renee Gorham. They mm-hmm. closed that up on North Williams, and then they took over the Woodsman space, uh, Woodsman Tavern space right. division. So we did the opening there, and I just, I'm so um, honored that they let us come in and do those openings. If we can talk about some of the openings we've done are pretty cool. Um, what was your question again? No, I just, I just wanted to talk about that one, just the significance of that. Just oh, that being, one was, you know. was pretty incredible. So um, just to tell a little story on that, the idea for the iteration that is now Portland Food Adventures came from John Gorham, who mm-hmm. was sitting at Tasty and Sons when it first opened, and he was at the counter, and I asked him, so where do you, because, you know, that was one of the best breakfast and brunch places, right? or it is. And I said, where do you like to go to breakfast? And he gave me a few places. And I thought, okay, well, this week I'm going to hit them all. Every Wednesday I'm going to Fuller's. And Tuesday I'm going to go to Little Red Bike Cafe. And I met somebody there at Little Red Bike Cafe and ordered this beautiful dish. And then the... um, the people, one of the guy who owned it came over and said, I had told him John Gorham sent me and he said, oh, cool. He said, oh, by the way, someone ordered this and they're not here to ex- receive it. Do you want this 
omelet and it was this beautiful the avocados were all sliced beautifully and, right. and this cute little place and they're being so nice to me and i thought wow here's an idea chefs telling you where to go mm-hmm. and that's how that's one of the re- ways it started yeah so i went back to john gorham when i had this idea and i said can we do an event at tasty and sons like the one i described to kathy wims and he said why don't you get your feet wet like, okay, I understand that. I, right. I've never been in the business. Yeah, I've yeah. never done anything. Two years later, I went back to him and said, okay, I got 24 under my belt. I, you can talk to any of these chefs or restaurants. I don't. It's not that, that complicated, but if they're not happy with it, they'll let you know. He said, all right, well, I'm opening um, the second Tasty, Tasty and Alder, uh, in a couple of months. Why don't you just handle the do the opening of that? So it'll be a Portland Food Adventures. Yeah. Well, since then... We've done the opening of Mediterranean Exploration Company. We've done the opening of re- reopening of Tasty and Alder. Mm-hmm. I did his catering business up at Wine Country, and now we just opened did the opening night. It's really cool to be able to say I was did the first ever dinner at these restaurants, yeah. which we've also done at Ox and Coquine, and I can't even think of some of the others. But yeah. just honored to be able to be the first people in these restaurants. If I do nothing else in the Portland Food Adventures just stops, and it's going to someday, um, I'll be able to think, wow, I, that was pretty pretty cool little run. I got to know these people who I'm not even in their industry. They, they really have no reason to yeah. respect me. Uh, it's but pretty cool. I, but I think over time, because I always get a kick out of of you, just your unassuming, you have a knowledge of, of the industry, you know these people, but you don't consider yourself a part of it. No, I'm a the, consumer. I'm, right. My whole thing is a yeah, promoter. Yeah. So I'm I'm not one of them, and I don't want. I and I sort of think that the years of advertising and marketing, what I bring to the table for them is mm-hmm. I don't think like you think. Right. I think like a consumer. So I think this is appealing to no. some people. But let me just finish on Tasty and Daughters because we had because on our podcast right at the fork, mm-hmm. we had uh, John Gorham on talking about his brain tumor. Right. Which is a big deal. Yeah. They own a lot of important restaurants, mm-hmm. and he a year ago was diagnosed with this, and he's gone through surgery. And so, he, I don't do a lot of most of my events are not for charity. There's a reason for that, which we can go into or not. But, but this one, he said, I want it to be for the Brain Tumor Society. So we took a hundred of every hundred fifty dollar ticket and gave it to the Brain Tumor Society. So we had a check for them for 52 53 or actually more we auctioned a few things off mm-hmm. so they're gonna make like 5500 bucks from this and that is john gorham saying that's oh, not i don't need any money for food i'll cover the food i'm opening the restaurant i'm just testing everything anyway right. it's a marketing or it's a it's a uh, research and development cost yeah. and he's he fair so everybody was there it was really nice that they were that people were there to contribute to the brain tumor society and we had we had restaurant owners there who had brain tumors also. It was yeah. pretty it was pretty nice. And John at the when he did his introduction said, Listen, the reason I wanted you here and I wanted to said it was a little selfish the reason I wanna ra- raise money for these people. I want them to invent the pill so I don't have to deal with this. Right. So yeah. uh, that's what his thinking is. And I don't have it pulled a, up here. Uh we had we've had John on a couple of times on right. the Right at the Fork podcast. And he, he the, the most recent one, I'll find it and I'll put it in the notes. Right. Um, he really gets into, you know, that whole diagnosis and what it means and what it means for his future because he's still potentially down the road. Oh, he's, he's going to be living words. with this all of his he's, life. Yeah. And, and it's a Until big that th- pill is invented. It's a big threat. And, and not only that, along the way, he was very forthright on the podcast and talked about how um, all of this has resulted in 
massive. Uh, not well, I can't say massive, but when you have when you're depressed, I've been through depression. Yeah. When you have, it's a pretty big thing in your life. It's not something you just get over. It's not like having an annoying child. It's an annoying thing in your head that just drives every day for you in a negative way. Mm-hmm. So he's had depression he's had to deal with too. And um, awesome of him to be so uh, forthright talking to us on the podcast. I never said to him ahead of time, hey, we're going to go into this. I didn't even know yeah. about the depression. So. Uh, in the last five minutes that we have here, let's talk about the podcast. In 2014, you teamed up with our good friend Heather Jones. Right. And uh, and in fact, I think the catalyst came from her asking you about it. Is that right. how it went she down? Was, she, was, she was working with this now defunct company that was doing podcasts yeah. in Portland. So this, 2000, this would have been in 2013. Yeah. She wanted us, they talked to her about starting a food industry podcast and she needed a host. So she auditioned a few people, and she called me, I think primarily because I had contacts, right? So you, yeah. when you have a podcast, and we're doing it weekly, oh, right. contacts, contacts are very important yep. because you can get guests easier. Mm-hmm. No one at that time ever said, hey, you're going to have to worry about it. I, I, someone did say, you're never going to be able to carry this on after a year or two. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I could probably find guests for a year or two. I'm going to meet new people. So... Um, so I put the headphones on in front of a mic like I am right now, and then I realized while I was doing the, this is huge epiphany. This is what I went to college for. This is what I studied. This is what I always wanted to be yeah. when I was a kid watching those Knicks games and Mets games. I'd sit in front of the TV yeah. with a fake mic doing the broadcast. So yeah. I thought I'd really like to do it. I went to her and said, you know what? I just really would like to do this, but if you have somebody else you like more, that's fine. So we started the podcast in 2014, again, with no real plan other than we're probably not going to make any money doing this for a while. It's a labor of love. Yeah. And we're supporting the industry and uh, not supporting ourselves doing this. And uh, we went two years, got it up and running, and then she and I you know, had uh, decided that we either didn't want to do it anymore or it wasn't necessarily... You know, we weren't making any money. Right. You were losing money, actually. We were losing money. Because of me. Yeah, because of you. We were paying you, but yeah. that, that was never part of the discussion. Sure. But here's the thing. When you're not making money or losing it, if you're not having fun, yeah. right? And it was fun, but I mean, it wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't. Like, so we just decided, uh, I said to her, I don't know if I want to do this anymore like this. And she said, well, if you don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. And I said, oh, all right, well then. And then she just... And the conversation said, well, why don't you just take it? And I thought, I was fully prepared to not do it anymore. Right. And then I thought, well, okay, I can't do this on my own. There's no way, and I don't want to do it on my own. And you were the natural. You had been at the board yeah. doing everything technical and all the things on the back end and the, uh, you know, and the, with Libsyn and so forth. Mm-hmm. And she called you and said, you want to do this podcast with me? We'll be partners on this. And so that was 2000. 2016, January 2016, and now we're in 2019. I can't believe it. It's that it's gone that far. So Food Dude, the guy who blog I mentioned before, wrote me in year two and said, it's a nice podcast, but I don't know how you're going to continue to get all these guests. Yeah. And I said, I, I didn't doubt, I didn't doubt my, yeah, I, I can do it. And now we do some repeats. We check in with people years we later. We do repeats again. We, and we check back in because there is this evolution the, the conversation, I mean, we went through this whole there and I think the tipping thing is still out there, but we went through various iterations of how tipping should work. The no tipping. Oh, that, yeah. Front that of house, changes. back of house type stuff. And it's constantly evolving. 
Um, and now it's not as big of an issue once it, they change the law. Right. So it changed everything. So would you would you be able to uh, in terms of the biggest change you've seen, and not not just for the podcast, but from maybe when you started doing the Portland Food Adventures to where things are now, what's been the biggest change in the food world that you've, that you've noticed? Well, there's really been a sea change in the last year. Yeah. That, and so there, you know, changes. Of course, now we have next generations of people. So the 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 mentors of before are now the the people they were mentoring are now the mentors yeah. in many cases, and so they're. They're the mills for new chefs and new talent. But the real sea change now is the economy and um, how one of the things we had going in Portland for years is that people could open a food cart and then generate a little bit of money and open a little restaurant and, and be creative yeah. and get some attention because they were being creative and maybe do pretty well. No, one, no one's driving Mercedes who own, owns restaurants right. in Portland. Uh, they will be sh- shortly, and this is why. So now in the last year, because the economy has changed and we're closing down food pot, or food, po- uh, food cart pods, food cart pods, thank you, to open up hotels and yeah. retail space, and those are going to have to be brick and mortar, and they're not inexpensive, so they require big investors. It's like Seattle now. Mm-hmm. Big investors to open these restaurants so that they can't take the chances, the creative chances as much. You're not going to have a kingdom of the Roosevelt right. that opens for two years. And uh, so, and everything's way more expensive than it was. Yeah. So food's getting more expensive and and it's also the service is a big issue because how do you sustain a restaurant now? How's it, What's the best way? Fast casual where you walk up to the register and you order and you take a number and they bring it bring to, to you. you. Mm-hmm. So now... Uh, now I'm paying about the same amount as I did 10 years ago, but I'm busting my own table and getting my own water. And right. Just make, fun, sure, uh, make sure you tip yourself. Yeah, exactly. And But I'm also tipping them, right. too. There's the tip line. They yeah, turn yeah. it around and they want yeah. 20%, and that's all well and good. They need that to sustain. Sure. But then there's, as I said, there's that consumer side of it, too. I look at it as a consumer and say, if, if I'm going to pay a 20% tip, I want someone taking my order right. and bringing me the food. Yeah. So, um, But I understand the other side of it. There's no easy answer. But anyway, that's the biggest change that I see in Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, and with TV catching on, you're seeing a Portland-type food scene happening in other places, like right. Nashville. You're oh, yeah. hearing about that, and Charleston, and um, and even even places like uh, Medford. You know, down oh, there. Sure. They have some cool restaurants. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. On so, top of the, the mass migration, or at least the... Uh, the uh, companies coming in and buying the the Portland named restaurants and putting them in Vegas. Well, that getting, too, and all the, the Vegas versions of all these places too. Right, and we're going to become a little, little more open to Vegasy kind of things. Restaurants from out of town who have the money yeah. to come in here and do it well. So I, um, but yeah, so you're seeing Pac Pac and lardo mm. in vegas now. yeah that the big change before was they went from a food cart to a restaurant yeah. now they're doing that and you know look at look at micah camden with blue star donuts they're in japan right they're opening so there, there are a lot of things happening mm-hmm. it's kind of cool um it's harder to follow now yeah oh my god i don't even i the the eater Best Restaurant Awards, their nominations came out a few months ago, and I looked at it and said, I don't even know two of those places. Yeah. I'm supposed to be in yeah, this yeah. Food, food scene. So it's harder to follow now. His name is uh, Chris Angeles. He's been our guest here on the Portland 50, and you can find you at Portland Food ADV on Instagram. 
Right. And if you don't follow that Instagram handle, you need to because you're not going to get a lot of food there, but you're going to get a lot of uh, great coastal pictures yeah. and great pictures of your two dogs. Oh, I mix in the food. So you're going to you, see- You do get the food. I, but, just this morning, I posted some stuff from Bollywood Theater yeah. and Double Mountain Pizza. Sure. Which you, have I you ever been to Double Mountain? I have not. I saw oh, the picture man. and it looked, it looked delicious. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And then my travel. I love to post that food. That's fun because that's stuff people in- Portland haven't seen, so I mix it up a little bit. So, yeah, that Instagram and then our podcast Instagram, yeah. which we don't spend a lot of no, time with. Probably should spend more. Yeah, probably should spend more. That's Food Podcast PDX at yeah. Food Podcast PDX, and that's right at the fork.com. And then the other one, I'm getting congested. PortlandFoodAdventures.com. Well, that's a good, probably you're getting congested, and we're out of time. And so, there's one other thing I want to say. Yes, is that we would love to have people join us on the trips. They're really special, oh, yeah. and I'm not. I'm not a high pressure salesperson but right. if someone calls me i can tell them the virtues and why we have repeat people coming on multiple trips because we're doing something pretty cool so um australia when does this when is this, this is gonna i'm actually gonna put it out today today yeah australia in april fares are like 900 bucks to australia and that trip is awesome and we have some space and we have a Right now, only five people going, so we're not going to get so big that it's crazy. Right. But if we had, if we could find another couple or two to get it to seven or nine, oh my god, they're going to have such a good time. There you go. So, and, so, so you got to contact Chris just if you you're, if you're slightly curious about it. Or Bologna in October yeah. too. So and that's awesome. And I never talked about in case she's listening, my dear friend Austri and oh, yeah. who does curates the trips for us. Mm-hmm. She's they're unbelievable trips to Italy. You can't have. Any, any other way than going with us. You've got that information at uh, Portland, PortlandFoodAdventures.com. Plural. Yes. Did I say adventure? PortlandFoodAdventures.com. I'm just making sure people okay. know that because all, right. all of a sudden say I, I <laughs> emailed you at PortlandFoodAdventure.com. So and it, didn't, it didn't go anywhere. Didn't, and I probably should have it set up so that works, that. right? Yeah. That, good it's just more money. That's why I came on your, there your, we go. your, your podcast we to that figure out. that out. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. And in case you've missed any previous podcast, be sure to check out kink.fm or download an episode wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to like and subscribe. The Portland 50 is a podcast about the people who dream, build, and champion the uniqueness of Portland, creating a better community for generations to come. It's presented weekly by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.